and welcome to the Reconsidering Russia podcast. I'm your host, Pietro Shakarian, and that was the Kupin Cossack Choir singing a rousing rendition of the traditional Ukrainian folk song, which is uh, a very famous song in Zaporozhia, you know, the Cossack areas, it's a very famous Cossack song, and the unofficial anthem used by the Ukrainian anarchist, revolutionary Nestor Makhno, during the Russian Civil War of 1917 through 1922. My guest in the program today is Dr. Yuri Zhukov, no relation to Marshal Georgi Zhukov. Dr. Zhukov is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor and a faculty associate with the Center for Political Studies at the Institute for Social Research. His research focuses on the dynamics of conflict both at international and local levels. He has done studies on conflicts in the North Caucasus and most recently in Ukraine's Donbass. And if you had any doubt as to Dr. Zhukov's interest in Ukraine, just check out his website with that beautiful uh, painting by Ilya Repin of um, the Ukrainian Cossacks replying to uh, the Turks. You know, so if you want to check that out, that's it's there. Basically, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Zhukov today about the Donbass generally and about the conflict in Ukraine. Yuri, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Pietro. It's good to be here. And uh, so, first, I'd like to ask you, what draws you to researching conflicts, both in the former USSR and elsewhere? So, I think uh, what draws me to the study of conflict is probably the same thing that probably draws you to the study of Russia. I find it interesting. <clears throat> I stumbled onto this topic kind of by accident uh, when I was an undergraduate. I had a hard time deciding what I wanted to do with my life and then September 11th happened, and that highlighted both the importance of, uh, of the study of conflict as a social science endeavor, and also struck me as something that's eminently quantifiable, uh, relatively analytically tractable. I actually started out as a naval historian and then ended up slowly moving over to the study of irregular conflicts, civil wars, insurgencies. And you're political science now, yes? I'm a political scientist, yes. Okay, all right. So your most recent research, Trading Hard Hats for Combat Helmets, deals with the ongoing war in the Donbass in Ukraine. Tell me about this research. So this paper is part of a larger project in which I'm trying to collect data on the conflict in eastern Ukraine in near real time. Near real time meaning several weeks to several hours, depending on how much free time I have. Mm -hmm. And in this paper, I look at village level data on violence and territorial control. In, uh, in eastern Ukraine. And I find that in the areas that are economically dependent on Russia, uh, where a high pro proportion of local labor forces employed in industries that depend heavily on Russian exports. The violence there occurred sooner. Rebel control was established much earlier in the conflict. Uh, the average level of violence week to week was much higher. And uh, the risk of violence was greater there overall than in areas less economically dependent on Russia. So this is essentially an argument that the rebels in this part of the country, which have been characterized as pro-Russian in the media, are pro-Russian for reasons other than ethnicity or language. The Donbass conflict, in my view, is not really an ethnic conflict in the way we typically think of it. Right. Now, this whole uh, EU association agreement with Ukraine, mm -hmm. these people were concerned about the impact of it. Maybe you can explain more about that. Right. So the Donbass, uh, by the way, which is shorthand for the Donetsk Coal Basin, is economically very distinct from other parts of Ukraine. It is very heavily industrialized. 
also very densely populated. And the labor force there is much more heavily employed in industries uh, such as machine building, such as coal mining to a certain degree, which would be adversely affected by the EU association agreement and free trade uh, agreement. According to the terms of the free trade agreement, Ukraine would receive preferential access to European markets in exchange for implementing certain administrative reforms and bringing their production standards up to uh, European standards. There are certain industries that would benefit from this agreement within, within Ukraine, particularly the metals industry. Other beneficiaries of this agreement would be the average Ukrainian consumer. They, they would benefit from cheap European imports into Ukraine. Industries that would not be competitive on the, Euro, on the European market include machine building. Uh, there are huge company towns in large parts of eastern Ukraine which rely almost exclusively on trade with Russia. So things like lo- large locomotive plants, yeah. factories that are producing the same, essentially the same engine and the same wagons for decades uh, for what had, prior to the Soviet collapse, been a, a domestic market. Yeah, that was uh, actually the... There was like a whole chain of like a Soviet military industrial complex, like extending from mm-hmm. Donbass into Dnipropetrovsk mm-hmm. into Poltava. Like there's this whole like chain of command that existed. So what would the association agreement mean for these industries? So what it would mean for these industries is that they would lose a lot of business because um, essentially what the free trade agreement uh, provokes from Russia's side is certain trade barriers, protective in nature, some of which are punitive in nature, many of which are to be expected because Russia is concerned about a flood of cheap European goods. And, and Russia has implemented uh, trade barriers uh, that disproportionately affect industries within the Donbass. They have also implemented a long-term strategy of import substitution in which they try to move more of the production for the military industrial complex and for these locomotive industries inside Russia. Right. So now they have the full cycle of production. For instance, helicopter uh, engines, which traditionally had been imported from Ukraine, are now being manufactured in Russia. Locomotive engines and wagons, which had traditionally been uh, produced in Ukraine, are now being produced in Russia. And as a result of this, uh, wages will decline in, uh, in eastern Ukraine, particularly in these company towns. Right. Uh, people will lose their jobs. And even where this hadn't happened yet, there's still the anticipation of this negative economic shock. The blame for which uh, is attributed to Kiev rather than Russia. When you look at Donbass, this is really kind of like a Soviet rust belt. You know, something like analogous to like, you know, Allentown, Pennsylvania or something. This is really kind of, uh, was a really kind of heavy industrial center. What was kind of the backstory of Donbass and its relationship to the rest of Ukraine? Sure. Well, uh... The main industrial center of, Don, of the Donbass, uh, Donetsk, was founded by a Welsh businessman, uh, John Hughes, in 1869. The original name of the town was actually Yusufka, uh, which is kind of a Russian bastardization of uh, Hughes' name. <laughs> and from even before Soviet times, this was the industrial heartland of the Russian Empire. Right. Um, logistically, it was connected to all parts of, of Russia and Ukraine. It was a huge uh, transportation hub for rail and, uh, and road networks. It served as the backbone, in many ways, of uh, the railroad revolution in Russia prior to the beginning of the First World War that right. made the Germans so nervous because a lot, of, uh, a lot of the industrialization in this part of Ukraine, in this part of Russia, helped, for instance, with uh, pre-war mobilization. Uh, it helped Russian troops mobilize faster for a war in Europe, which made the Germans very nervous in 1914. And traditionally, this has also been a major site of uh, coal production. And, and metals. And the, the three main industries in the region, metals, coals, 
and machine building have all kind of been a well been the comparative advantage of this of this region, but also they've been disproportionately uh, competitive in the international market. Like in the '30s, um, this was kind of like the center of like the Stakhanovite movement mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. Yes, I believe so. Uh, yeah, and they they also uh, so now this uh, area too. Uh, you know, it's primarily the people are Ukrainian, but they're Russian speaking Ukrainian, and there are also some ethnic Russians mixed in there. This is kind of like a like a vague point right. where Russia and Ukraine kind of. Yeah, so according to the latest census, 38% of the population is ethnically Russian, which is a large ethnic minority of Russians, one of the largest concentrations of ethnic Russians in Ukraine outside of Crimea. But 75% of the population is Russian-speaking, including almost 60% of ethnic Ukrainians. Traditionally, this has been, particularly in the more urbanized, more economically developed areas where there's been a very skilled labor force, Russian has always been the language of business, the language of administration. And the correlation between what language you speak at home doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily straightforward with your political beliefs, although due to the economic uh, composition of the region, due to the employment uh, structure, they have certainly favored very different policies and economics than uh, other parts of Ukraine, which are much more agrarian and more service oriented. Now, most of the fighters in Donbas are locals, uh, but there also have been some Russian volunteers there. Maybe you can tell me a bit about this. Sure. Uh, so it all depends on how you define the word volunteers. So the public face of the rebellion in uh, the Donbass is local. Um, it makes very little sense to place uh, special forces from Russia manning checkpoints and, and trenches. Mm -hmm. The volunteers that are fighting there are of, are of several different varieties. There's um, ultranationalist Russians that have volunteered to fight there with various movements, such as uh, Dugin's Eurasian movement. Yeah. There's some uh, followers of Eduard uh, Limonov and that ilk fighting there as well. There are also uh, more deeply entrenched local Russian nationalist movements that have recruited fighters from right. within Russia and also from the Baltic states. There's also a Serbian battalion serving there, many of which are currently wanted at home for various war crimes. There's, al there's also volunteers, in quotation marks, that are actually Russian servicemen who are apparently there on vacation, yeah. um, which was the official line that the Kremlin took last August. So tell me a bit about Igor Strelkov. So Igor Strelkov, uh, or Girkin is his real name, oh, he, he, he was a local field commander from Russia, uh, allegedly with uh, professional ties to the GRU, Russia's military intelligence service. He also participated in the uprising in, in Crimea before then. Mm -hmm. And he was instrumental in mobilizing local fighters and attracting fighters from within Russia, particularly he, in the Battle of Slavinsk in April of last year. Who was he actually Russian, sponsored by the Russian government? That we don't know. From what we can tell, the Russian government is actually very nervous about him. Yeah, um, and, and what we saw the last summer and last fall was uh, kind of a general purge of the insurgent ranks much of which was apparently uh, organized from from within Russia, basically to put a local face on, on, on the insurgency, to get the, the so-called Russian volunteers back into Russia or, or back out of the headlines, and, and to replace them with uh, more homegrown uh, politicians, homegrown rebel leaders. There are places where they have been more successful at this than, than others. Uh, par partly they were helped by the fact that Slavinsk and Kamatorsk, uh, the, the two main rebel-held cities that were then liberated by Kiev last summer, that these are two centers of control for Igor Stokov and other Russian volunteers, which no longer exist. And 
within uh, Luhansk Oblast, uh, there still remains kind of a very uneasy division of power between the, the formal uh, leadership under the so-called Luhansk People's Republic, uh, as well as local uh, and, and Russian Cossack troops, right. which have kind of coexisted in a very fragile way. The, the Cossacks don't really pay taxes to the, to, to the to Luhansk authorities. Right. Um, no one really controls them. There have been efforts to incorporate them into the armed forces of Luhansk People's Republic, um, which have meant uh, varying levels of success. But overall, it's it's a mess. Uh, there are a lot of different different rebel factions, uh, some of which yeah. are uh, are local, some of which are Russian, some of which are Cossack, kind of both yeah. Ukrainian and Russian. Um, also, you kind of got different ideologies going on. you got kind of like... Uh, the Russian nationalist ideology, you got like left-wing ideologies, you have uh, almost Maknovist mm -hmm. ideologies. So, so tell me about this kind of like a mosaic yeah. of ideologies. Yeah, the only thing that they can, they can really agree on is that they're not fans of Kiev. And, and the ideological motivations of the rebels fighting there, if you, if you watch some of the, some of the documentaries that, that have come out of this conflict, such as so, um, there's a series of documentaries released by an organization called Newsfront. Which are can be a little difficult to watch. They're kind of a pro-rebel uh, propaganda outlet. There have also been certain documentaries interviewing the Russian volunteers, and the motivations that they give you for fighting there range from we're fighting against fascists, uh, fighting against Ukrainian Nazis, fighting against Bandyrovtsi, uh, which is a, a pejorative term for adherence of the World War II era West Ukrainian uh, nationalist insurgents. There are, there are others who claim to be fighting for Russian language rights. There are others who claim to be fighting for traditional orthodox values. There are others who are fighting for more economic reasons that basically essentially their mind has been, sh the mind in which they had worked has been shelled to smithereens by, uh, by artillery fire and now they're out of a job and this is the only way that they can make ends meet. You told me once that there was a referendum in the 1990s about uh, Donbass getting kind of like a regional autonomy. What was this about? So, in 1993, there was a general strike within the Donbass that was organized by uh, coal miners. And this is a typical boss's strike in which coal mine bosses told their employees, I'm unable to pay you uh, for several months. Uh, you, but the reason I can't pay you is because uh, I, we don't have authority over who we sell our coal to, over what price we sell it at. So you, you need to take to the streets and, um, and ask Kiev for more local autonomy. And so there was a general strike in which several hundred thousand lo local industrial workers went to the streets, basically grinding the local economy to a halt. And they managed to secure a concession from Kiev to hold the referendum concurrently with the presidential elections in uh, 1994. They voted on three issues, and these and this these referenda were held in both Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. The issues were local political autonomy uh, for Donetsk and, and Luhansk, mm -hmm. uh, Russian language rights, and economic union with Russia. All three issues uh, received over 80% of popular support right. in both regions. This, these referenda were recognized by Kiev as being legitimate. People essentially forgot about them, uh, partly because the person who was elected president in 1994 was Leonid Kuchma, mm -hmm. who was seen as a more pro-Russian candidate, one who uh, would be a stronger advocate of the, of the interests of Eastern Ukraine in Kiev. And so these, these demands kind of weaned throughout the 1990s, although they never really went away. And the local networks that were used to mobilize these, these mine workers, these industrial workers, remained. 
the demands of the workers remained, and they reemerged from, from time to time. Every time there was a coal miner strike, these were rearticulated at some How many coal miner strikes have there been? Uh, since since yeah. Perestroika, I know Perestroika, there was a coal mm -hmm. miner strike. Uh, what about after independence? So, so you're right, during Perestroika, particularly in, in 1989, there was a mass coal miner strike, not just in Ukraine, but all, all across the Soviet Union. There was another strike in 1990, 1991, 1993, 1994, and then uh, once again in the late 90s, I believe 1998, 2002, 2007, 2011. These things reoccur periodically, largely in response to wages not being paid on time, also in response to mines being closed down. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the policies, was heavy state subsidies to basically dying coal mines. Ones that would otherwise have been shut down, uh, gov through government subsidies, workers still received their wages, and they were able to at least keep the mine operational, prevent flooding, prevent explosions, while not producing anything. So it was basically an artificial way to keep unemployment down. Right. This policy has come to an end, and this is one of the other economic shocks that has impacted the region, and it's one of the reasons why coal miners are have been heavily represented among the insurgent ranks right. since last year. So the question is, with this conflict in Donbass, will Kiev listen to the locals' demands? Because, like for instance, you have Poroshenko, and Poroshenko, he might want to make a compromise with the people of Donbass, but there are certain people within the Ukrainian government who are very hardline, nationalist guys, some of them on the far right, who don't want to grant these people anything. So do you see a problem there? There's certainly a problem there, and there's been a lot of talk, in, particularly in the Russian media, about the war party existing within the Ukrainian government, the head of which is usually seen as uh, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, the prime minister. Uh, there are other more radical uh, politicians, such as uh, Mitro Yarosh, who's the head of the right sector. Uh, it's very marginal electorally. It has, I think, less than 2% of the vote. But this party also has a lot of influence on the streets since the Maidan. So that's the problem. Uh, how do you control Indeed. Uh, well, well, the problem from Poroshenko's standpoint is that if he makes too many concessions to the rebels, he may, he may face a, a public uprising. Yeah. And uh, he will certainly face an uprising within the government itself as well. And so there are many veto players within the, the Ukrainian government that would stand in the way of any kind of long-term resolution to the conflict which would entail extensive autonomy granted to, to, uh, to these rural provinces, in part because there is a genuine moral hazard there. You would be rewarding, in a sense, bad behavior. Right. You, you would be creating incentives for other uprisings in other areas. And I, I, I think right now Poroshenko has the upper hand. Um, he has managed to consolidate power significantly since coming into office last spring although his electoral victory in the parliamentary elections was a little less than perhaps he would have liked. But overall, I think the, the general sense in, in Kiev is that the long-term solution of the conflict would have to involve some, some uh, degree of decentralization. Right. On that, everyone agrees. Even if, even if formally we can they would call it you know, a unified Ukrainian state, it's impossible to have not, not just Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, as full-fledged members of the Ukrainian state, but also in regions such as Odessa and Kharkiv and Dnipropetrovsk, where there are a lot of, I wouldn't say, well, certainly 
not separatist tendencies, but certainly pro-autonomy yeah. uh, sentiments. It would be very hard to keep the country whole without delegating some authority. Well, to and also, too, I mean, even like if you go like out west to Zakarpatia, the people mm -hmm. there have a very unique regional identity. So my question is, Ukraine has been very nervous about the term federalization. All right, now there are some, some in Ukraine see this as being almost akin to a confederation. But yet, federal governments exist in Germany, in Canada, you know, in the United States, obviously. Can Ukraine, I mean, is this a good example for Ukraine to follow, of a devolution of powers? And how much support does this have? So it has very little support because the word federalization is one that Russian officials use. Mm -hmm. uh, so in part, of the, the problem is not with the idea, but with the messenger. Right. But I'll, I'll tell you right now, the, uh, the U.S. ambassador, Jeffrey Pyatt, openly advocated for decentralization. Of, of Ukraine as part of the long-term solution to this conflict. Um, in fact, uh, this a similar type of federal project was enacted in 1994-1995 to keep Crimea from seceding. There was a separatist movement within Crimea in the 1990s. They elected their own president. They were about to have a referendum on independence. The conflict, again, waned because they gained regional autonomy status, became the Autonomous Republic of Crimea. Mm -hmm. uh, similar arrangement is more likely than not in other parts of Ukraine, they probably just won't call it federalization, they'll call it decentralization. Yeah. Uh, so that normally on paper, it will look like a unit, unitary Ukrainian state, but many more uh, decisions will be uh, delegated to local regional authorities. Well, for instance, right now, local oblasti, they cannot elect the regional governor. Correct. That's, that's something Kiev mm -hmm. decides. And uh, this has actually caused some controversy because in some uh, oblasti, they actually had appointed leaders from the far-right party, Swoboda, mm. to lead Oblasti, and this caused some controversy and stuff. So I think to have people vote on who your leaders are, I think, makes much more sense, especially if you want to be democratic. I mean, mm -hmm. this whole thing is about democracy. You want to have that. Sure, yeah, and, uh, and, and one of Kiev's original strategies uh, as this conflict first erupted last spring was to appoint uh, oligarchs as uh, yeah. as governors, particularly in the, in the eastern regions, which backfired uh, <laughs> in at least one case in Dnipropetrovsk, where uh, local oligarch uh, Igor Kolomoisky uh, was seen as having too much power, essentially running his own private army and being an independent player in Ukrainian politics. He has been removed from office. But overall, so I think that experience also taught Kiev a lesson that even if you do appoint your own governors, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will not be independent players in their own right. Uh, Do they realize, so for instance, there has been this anti-terrorist operation against Donbass, and this is, is kind of the, from the Kiev side of the war, and um, again, like we said, Yadosh, very marginal guy, but he has a disproportionate force on the streets, but then there are also these battalions like Azov Battalion and Idor Battalion, which has been accused of uh, human rights abuses by Amnesty International. So how, I mean, this doesn't help the public perception in Donbass of Kiev. Do you think that there's something, I can Kiev, you know, at one point deal with these extremists within its own ranks and try to bring back Donbass? I mean, it's just, how do you see this? They're trying to incorporate many of these uh, volunteer battalions into the Ministry of the Interior, into, in, into Ukrainian armed forces as well, uh, with limited success. So, so to a certain degree, some of these battalions operate largely independently of Kiev. Um, what happened with the regular army? The regular army, at the outset of the conflict, had about 6,000 uh, combat-ready troops, which, which 
clearly created a demand for additional force providers. The National Guard was organized uh, largely on the backs of uh, former Maidan uh, protesters, uh, self-defense forces, uh, people who had been protesting, throwing Molotov cocktails in, uh, in right. Kiev, uh, then took up arms to defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Many of these battalions were funded by local oligarchs. Uh, they, in, in the case of the Dnipro 1 battalion, funded by Igor Kolomoisky, they essentially had two purposes, one of which was to defend territorial integrity of Ukraine, the other was to defend the economic interests right. of Igor Kolomoisky. And but there's also been a lot of desertion in the regular army, and sure. uh, Ruslan Kotsaba, West Ukrainian, uh, even was arrested recently for uh, speaking against the war. So, right. so there's, there's uh, a growing anti-war sentiment in the country. Whether it's growing or not, it's hard to gauge, uh, but there certainly is a lot of resistance to mobilization. There have been several mobilization drives within Ukraine since the conflict started, each of which resulted in people fleeing across the border to Hungary or to Russia and try, trying to escape being mobilized for, uh, for combat. And right now it is, now I believe, illegal to openly advocate for against the mobilization efforts. Yeah. But the mobilization efforts have not affected the volunteer battalions. Those are the most... Yeah, that's, that's yeah, completely that's, different. But I'm right. saying about the regular army, there yeah. are big issues because I know, for instance, um, Kotsaba was basically declared a prisoner mm -hmm. of conscience mm -hmm. by Amnesty International, mm -hmm. you know. Right. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of variation within, within the regular Ukrainian armed forces. At the early stages of the conflict, they relied more heavily on troops from the eastern parts of the country, from Dnipropetrovsk, uh, many of which did defect to the uh, to the rebel side, mm -hmm. who were not very militarily effective. For people who were mobilized from Donetsk and Luhansk, but you can understand uh, from their standpoint, they don't want to fight against the people that they used to live right next to. Right. They don't want to fight against their neighbors. And one of the main deterrents against uh, displaced persons moving into U into Ukraine proper rather than fleeing to Russia is that they don't want to be mobilized to fight, you know, against uh, their co-villagers. Right. More and more of the troops being utilized now are from central and, and western uh, parts of Ukraine. And if you look at the distribution of military, military casualties uh, across Ukrainian regions, most of them are from the central, uh, central parts of Ukraine. Right. But they did suffer very heavy losses, particularly last August and September in Ilovysk. Recently in Baltimore. Recently in Baltimore, for sure. Right. And there's clearly a lot of dissatisfaction within the ranks and, and uh, concern about Russian collaborators, Russian intelligence agents within in, in, in the top brass of the military. Now, Arseniy Yatsenyuk has advocated building a wall between Russia and Ukraine. What do you think of this idea? Is this I think that's impossible. <laughs> uh, the border is too long, uh, it's too expensive, and they need that money for other things. Explain to me the state of the Ukrainian economy as it exists today. The state of the Ukrainian economy is on the verge of default. Ukrainian currency, the Krivna, has lost over half of its value. You have to keep in mind that the Donbass, meaning both Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast, represents about 18% of Ukraine's GDP. Right. Um, so it's kind of like if the, if the U.S. lost California, uh, it would be a very big economic hit. Overall, the country's in, in very heavy debt. It has lost a lot, a lot of trade with its most important, uh, up to recently, trade partner, Russia. Uh, but that's also been part of a longer-term trend. Uh, exports to Russia have been declining. Uh, trade with the EU has been increasing over many years. But there's also an indirect effect of sanctions on Russia on Ukraine. 
this, any sanctions that will be imposed on Russia will indirectly affect Ukraine, both uh, from the remittances that Ukrainian citizens receive from their relatives working in Russia, also from trade within Russia shutting down. What do you see the future of the sanctions against Russia? Uh, they, the sanctions against Russia, particularly the U.S. sanctions, do not have a clear logic to them. Right. Uh, the, the general logic behind sanctions is we impose costs on, on someone for engaging in bad behavior. With the understanding that if they stop engaging in bad behavior, uh, the sanctions will be lifted. It's not clear how Russia can possibly comply with many of the, uh, the conditions for the sanctions that have been imposed. Russia is not going to let go of Crimea anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Other demands, such as to stop the violence in the Donbass, how can Russia possibly stop uh, fighting by lo local Cossacks, by ultranationalist Russian fighters uh, who are not directly uh, controlled, uh, controlled by, 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 by the Russian military? Right. They could potentially, ha they, they do have a lot of influence over, over the authorities of the so called DNR and, and, and LNR, who they do not control, are these local cowboys. Uh, right. Firing off artillery shells in direct violation of the ceasefire, and there's a general collapse of command and control within these these two terrorists. There's no magic switch that Putin can flip to stop the conflict. In that sense, the sanctions have more of a punitive logic to them rather than a coercive logic. They punish past sins rather than trying to prevent future bad behavior. So I think the sanctions are are there to stay. I mean, this is hurting. I mean, for U.S., it's very easy for U.S. to impose the sanctions on Russia, but in terms of its impact on EU. In Russia, it's it's been very adverse, hasn't it been? Yes, uh, certainly to a much greater degree than the U.S. Only uh, Russia represents a very small proportion of of U.S. trade, and, right. and and the reverse is also true. So there are no genuine economic interests restraining the imposition of sanctions within the U.S. There are there's essentially no voices in favor of lifting sanctions within the U.S. government or within the U.S. business community. The situation is different within Europe, particularly in uh, in countries such as Greece whose agricultural exports uh, depend heavily on Russia, and, um, and also in Germany. Now, that still does not mean that there is a critical mass of support in favor of lifting the sanctions within European states. And most of the voices in favor of, of loosening the sanctions, or at least not supporting new ones, uh, are, are using this card kind of opportunistically. Uh, so, for instance, the new uh, Greek government has been playing the Russian card Signaling its support for well, not really, not really support, but really opposition to additional sanctions as a bargaining chip with Germany. So, so mm -hmm. uh, we will we will relax our position, we will relax our opposition to additional sanctions if you uh, meet us halfway on resolving uh, Greek debt, uh, for instance. Uh, see similar dynamics within Hungary, uh, but overall, it's uh, opposition to. Russia sanctions is more of a bargaining chip than anything else. Right. There have been parties in the U.S. who have spoken about, uh, hawks in the U.S. who have spoken about arming Ukraine. What do you think of this? I mean, this isn't going to help the Donbass. It will certainly not help. It seems uh, like President Obama is trying to prevent mm. this, but there are a lot of voices in both parties who seem to be interested in doing this. So what? how do you think this is going to play out? So... From the standpoint of units fighting on the ground on the Ukrainian side, you can certainly understand the demand for uh, more military support from the U.S. And there's a general dissatisfaction with the amount of support that's been received so far. So you're talking about units that do not have Kevlar vests, that do not have winter boots, 
that certainly did not have many anti-tank munitions that, that they deemed necessary to fight against the rebels. Uh, the problem with supplying these weapon systems to Ukraine is, is that uh, they would not be sufficient to shift the balance of power on the ground, but they would be more than sufficient to escalate the conflict. Right. And so, uh, for instance, uh, drones, uh, which the Ukrainian government wants, because right now they have an intelligence disadvantage, Russian military units that are supporting the rebels have been flying drones over Mariupol recently to, uh, to identify firing positions on the Ukrainian side, to do basic reconnaissance. Ukraine cannot, uh, cannot do a similar thing because their drones got shut down, they do not have air control, and, and the anti-air defense systems controlled by the rebels are very extensive. So any drones that the U.S. sends to Ukraine will be shot down in the mm -hmm. sky. It will certainly have a symbolic effect in that we're doing something to help the Ukrainian armed forces. So an example of this kind of symbolic support that Ukraine has already been receiving are a series of exercises in Lviv, Oblast uh, held recently in which basically company-sized marine units on, uh, on the U.S. side have been training National Guard units within Ukraine. Again, this is not enough to shift the balance of power. Russia has escalation dominance in this conflict. Any support that the U.S. provides to the rebels, uh, to, I mean, to the, to the Ukrainian government, will be matched and probably exceeded by, by Russian support. This will also have a propaganda effect within Russia in that the second a, a munition that says made in the USA lands in a residential neighborhood of Donetsk, uh, Russian media will have a field day with it. Sure. And um, this will also untie Putin's hands, uh, who up until now has had the strategy of plausible deniability. Uh, I'll, pro I'll pro provide support for uh, DNR and LNR uh, without it being overly uh, explicit, uh, overly visible. And if, I, if Putin wants to mobilize Russian support for a more extensive involvement of Russian troops on Ukrainian territory, U.S. military support gives him the leverage that he needs. <laughs> but overall, I think there's a general recognition, uh, even among hawks within the, within the, within the U.S. Senate, uh, in, the, in the think tank community, that Everything I've just said is true. Uh, that this is uh, not going to fundamentally shift the balance of power. Uh, well, why, Russia why, are they, why are some of them still advocating sending weapons? Though? In part because there's a sense that we need to do something. Uh, <laughs> we need to do something to help help Ukraine defend itself. Uh, we need to send some signal of resolve to to the Ukrainian government. We need to boost their morale. So, for instance, uh, recently we have provided them with Humvees, which Ukraine neither needs nor necessarily wants this would necessarily prevent against roadside bombs and one of ukraine's comparative advantages in the defense that's industrial sector is an armored personnel carriers that's one weapon system they do not need but it um but the logic as well is that um if the provision of these weapons may not shift balance of power but it will raise the cost for russia uh for, for providing military support and if you see more coffins of russian troops crossing the border back into russia more military funerals within Russia, that will decrease Russian population. And that at support. least is the logic. That is the logic. But uh, we know Russia, Ukraine, that's it's a very interrelated history, you know, I mean, uh, going back to Kiev and Rus. And so, will, I mean, is Russia going to easily give up on Ukraine? I mean, there's a sense that there's this, this is based on an assumption that Russia will just give up on Ukraine. Yeah, it, it is highly unlikely, in, in my view, uh, based on my reading of uh, public opinion surveys, that it will have the effect that the proponents of sending arms to Ukraine wanted to have. If, if anything, I think the, the reverse is probably true. Uh, we will have a rally, rallying effect within Russia. Also, that, in terms of Russian-Ukrainian relations, how many like Russians and Ukrainians are intermarried with each other? 
we see this like Mikhail Gorbachev and his family, you know, uh, Yuri Shevchuk, the famous rock, Russian rock musician, you know, Yevtushenko, uh, uh, you know, you can go on a whole list, Solzhenitsyn. So, I mean, this is very close relationship. Yeah, it's it certainly is. Um, there, there to this day, are, uh, there are probably two million Ukrainian citizens living and working in Russia right now, according to statistics that were just released by the head of the Russian Federal Migration Service. So the the two countries are inextricably linked, both through family connections, through cultural ties, through economic ties, which I, I think are at the heart of the story. It's very hard for many Russians to to perceive Ukraine as, first of all, being an independent country, which is problematic. In the same sense, that it would probably be very difficult for Americans to perceive California as being an independent country if California seceded uh, or became independent in 1991. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly in, in eastern Ukraine, where rates of intermarriage are very high, uh, and the dividing line between Russian and Ukrainian is very fluid, to say the least. Uh, Russians perceive Ukraine as being at the heart of uh, Russia's national interests, uh, in, in the heart of Russia's sphere of influence. Rightly or wrongly, a lot of Ukrainians will certainly object to this characterization. And this is all part of the general imperial hangover that Russia's had uh, since 1991. Yeah. Losing an empire is difficult. It's very it, hard to perceive these countries as independent states. And also, too, actually going all the way back to late Tsarist times, Ukrainians played a, a role in kind of the Russian state formation, you know, I mean, there was always kind of the sense of like, you know, they were like the junior partner of the empire, you know, so to speak. So there's this kind of like a amb ambiguity with Ukrainians and Russians, you know, it's such a mixed yeah, relationship. It's, it, 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 it's, the story certainly varies. Uh, many Ukrainians were at the heart of the Soviet elite for much of the 20th century. There are many others who are victims of the Soviet regime, uh, the mm -hmm. victims of the, of the famine the relatives of the rebels who fought for Ukrainian independence during World War II and after, who used to be part of Austria-Hungary and the Poland. Uh, so here I'm talking about Galicia and Volhynia, parts of Western Ukraine that have traditionally been the center of anti-Russian Ukrainian nationalism. So there are many different Ukraines. Um, yeah, there's like a Western Ukraine, a Central Ukraine, and Southeastern Ukraine. Yes. Right. So, yeah, many of at, at the very least. <laughs> yeah. uh, at the yes. very least. And, um, and Zakarpatia is its own thing. Zakarpatia yeah. is its own, <laughs> its own thing. Uh, I used to be part of Hungary, which Hungarian nationalists like to point out. Yeah, that's theirs. Mm -hmm. How do you see this whole conflict between East and West resolved? Can it be resolved? Had we been having this conversation a year ago, I would say that the conflict can be resolved within Ukraine through decentralization. Uh, potentially federalization under a different name. Right now, I think the best case scenario is for the conflict to be frozen. Right. It's not a conflict that militarily Ukraine can win, given the current balance of power, given the current balance of interest between Russia and the West. I think the best case scenario is to freeze the conflict and try to reintegrate these rebel provinces back within Ukraine in some way or another. And Russia doesn't seem to have a deep interest in annexing these territories as it had within Crimea. Militarily, logistically, that would be a very difficult task. Um, most likely, we would have kind of a frozen conflict along the lines of Abkhazia, Nagorno-Karabakh, or Transnistria, only on a more massive scale, much more populous territory, much more economically powerful, but also potentially an ungoverned territory that will prevent Ukraine from being a full-fledged member of the EU, being a full-fledged member of NATO, in the near future because it has its own resolved conflict within its territory, which is probably what Putin wants. And it will be very hard to 
move away from the status quo. The best case scenario is to prevent fighting from restarting again on a massive scale. So freeze the conflict and hope for a longer-term resolution down the road. All right. Uh, Yuri Zhukov, thank you very much for this interview, and uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. That was Dr. Yuri Zhukov of the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, and this is the Reconsidering Russia podcast, and as always, to quote Edward R. Murrow, good night and good luck. <laughs>